Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Just the, the title, when, when God doesn't make much sense, it's, uh, there, there are complexities in Scripture and there are, there are paradox, paradoxes and, and there are cultural things that seem so difficult for us to understand when we have our own stuff that we're reading Scripture and we're kind of fighting and wrestling against that. And one of the things that I've noticed so much in my own life is when I first read Scripture and, and I was reading it anew, fresh for the first time, there were things in which I, I just kind of sat there and I'd be like, what in the world is going on? Or like, I don't quite get it. I don't understand what's, what's going on here. A lot of times I didn't even know what I was reading, uh, let alone actually understanding it. And so I can tell you guys, and I think all of us can collectively say this, the, the, the more that we are sanctified in Christ, the more that we grow in Christ, we often begin to see the, the beautiful picture of the paradoxes. We begin to see the, the beautiful pictures of the rub against the culture that actually is so beautiful and wonderful for us to participate in the body of Christ together. Uh, and there's a, a passage that, that when, when, when Scott and I were talking about the series and he asked me to, uh, to step in for this Sunday, that was kind of an immediate thing that, um, that still is, is difficult at times for me, not necessarily to understand, but it's really difficult for me to really flesh out in my life. And that is in, in Luke chapter 14. And so that's where we're going to be at today. So if you guys want to kind of work your way towards that. Uh, it's, it's just a particular passage that, that even at the surface sometimes, it, it, seems, it can seem slightly contrary to God's character and nature himself until we really begin to understand the fullness of, of his word. And so let's pray as you guys are, are working your way towards that. Father, we, we pray and we ask and we come before you and we, we thank you, uh, Lord, for, uh, for worship uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the opportunity, Lord, to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are adopted, that we are chosen, that we are elected by you, uh, Father, that we can join together as the body of Christ, uh, Lord, to encourage, to edify, to correct, to teach, uh, Lord, all in the pursuit of just being reconciled to you on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. So, Lord, as, as we seek your word this morning, we ask and we pray. Lord, that our hearts would be convicted. Lord, that we would relinquish more of the flesh. And Lord, that we would just desire to love and serve you above everything else, we pray. Amen. So I want to go ahead and, and, and read Luke chapter 14, and it's 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish her. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a hard passage, is it not, at face value? (laughs) 
This is one of those passages that you stumble upon and you really kind of get to that, that place of, for some, it's, it's the question, did, did Jesus actually say this? Like that I need to hate my own mother and father, wife, children. Did he say that? And then for some of us at a place that we trust in, in the word at, at, at face value and we say, okay, so Jesus said this. What is he saying, right? Because this doesn't sound right, right? This sounds contrary to the aspects of loving my neighbor and, and loving my spouse and encouraging and edifying uh, that I might be uh, like Jesus to my bride, that I might love her to the point of death, right? Now I'm told to hate her? <laughs> like what's going on here? And so oftentimes in scripture, we get to these points of like, God, you, you don't make sense right now. Like, I, I don't know what you're saying. And this is one of those passages. And it's, it's a passage that, that's been on my mind. And, 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 and it really hits to the very core and the very nature of who we are as people. You know, for me, I, I love my family. And they're so near and dear to me. Sometimes I do dislike them. But I, for the most part, I love them, right? Right? You know, Jennifer and I, we both... Look, there's a reality of raising children that there is a difficulty there. And I think we all know this, right? Whether you have one, four, or 10, right? There is a difficulty in raising children. And there is a, a look, I, I've always, after having kids, I've always come to the realization, if you want to see your own selfishness and the, the impatience of, your, of yourself, have a kid, right? Because you will find out quickly that you are selfish and you want stuff and you are not patient, I am not, I thought I was patient before I had kids. I am not patient because they try and they test me. Anyway, that was, okay, I need to get back. Okay. <clears throat> All right. And so when we read a passage like Luke 14, we, we are met with a lot of these different types of questions and we're met with just the, the glaring in your face. What are you saying, Jesus? All right, what, what do you mean by this? And I, and I do want to get to some of these questions, but I wanted to illustrate uh, this concept, this idea. It's not perfect, but there's a story that I want to share of a, a man by the name of David Brainerd. Does anyone actually know David Brainerd? Oh, good. This is good. This is encouraging. All right. So David Brainerd was uh, a missionary. He was born in, uh, on April 20th, 1718 in Haddam, Connecticut. And the Great Awakening was just right coming around the corner when, when Brainerd would live through both ways of it. Uh, through the mid-30s and 40s of, of the 1700s. Brainerd's father, Hezekiah, was a Connecticut uh, legislator and died when David was only nine years old. Five years after his death at the age of 46, after his father's death at the age of 46, his mother died when he was 14. It seems there was this unusual strain of, of uh, weakness and depression in the family. Not only did his parents die early, his brother Nehemiah died at 32, his brother Israel died at 23, and his sister Jerusha died at 34. And when his mother died, he, he actually moved across the Connecticut River to East Haddam uh, to live with his married sister, Jerusha. And he described his religion during these years as very careful and serious, but having no true grace. He's essentially saying that he wasn't saved. He, he, he knew God's word and he was working through all these things, but his religion was dead. And during the summer of 1738, he had a commitment. He had made a commitment to God to enter in the ministry. This is all not too dissimilar from John Wesley as well, if you guys know his story. But still, he was not converted. He read the Bible through twice that year and began to see more clearly that all his religion was legalistic and simply based on his own efforts. Half an hour before the sunset, at the age of 21, he was in a lonely place trying to pray. And these are his words. 
As I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I had never had before, nor anything that I had the least remembrance of, so that I stood still and wondered and admired. I had now no particular apprehension of any person of the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I then beheld, and my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God." such a glorious divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the the loveliness and the greatness and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in him, at least to that degree that I had not thought as I remember at first about my own salvation, or scarce there was such a creature as I. Thus the Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt him, to set him on the throne and seek first his kingdom, principally and ultimately to aim at his honor and glory as the king and sovereign of the universe, which is the foundation of knowing Jesus. I felt myself in a new world. Ah, beautiful words. There's such a, a beauty when we find and know Christ for the first time. There's such a, a release of us when we know who he is and we see his glory and we, we benefit from his presence, like there's comfort and joy and just absolute wonder and amazement and knowing Christ. Two months after this, he enters into Yale to prepare for ministry. And for him, the next few years would be really difficult. Uh, he, had, he was hazed by upperclassmen. There's, uh, he said there was little spirituality, uh, that difficult studies. He, was, he got measles the first year. He so sick his second year that he began spitting up blood and had to go back. Uh, finally, in his third year, he became top of his class academically, and then he was kicked out of Yale uh, for his evangelistic zeal and also because of some of the words of the dead spirituality of his leaders that he spoke of them. Now, what's interesting about Connecticut at this time, which is where he was, is that in order to be a pastor, an ordained pastor in, the, in a Connecticut church, you had to have either gone to Yale, Harvard, or a European uh, university. And from there, he was not actually able to enter anywhere. He was almost in many ways blacklisted. And so you have a a guy who knows he is called into ministry, and yet he is stuck in this position of not being able to be in ministry in the way that he thought he was called to be. And it wounded him very deeply. And he tried again and again for several years to to make things right. And numerous people tried to help him out, but nothing to no avail. But God had another plan for David Brainerd. In the same way that when we read stories of the Old Testament, like the story of Joseph, God had another plan for David Brainerd. And what he did is that he drove him into the wilderness that he might suffer for his sake to make an incalculable impact on the history of missions. There are many missionaries around the world who are struck by the story of David Brainerd. On November 25th, 1742, Brainerd was sent as a missionary to the Native Americans. His first assignment, so my wife so graciously, and, and, and Scott has said that I, I know how to pronounce Greek. I do not know how to pronounce um, Native American names, so please, please forgive me. He was sent to the Housatonic Indians at I'm not going to skip that one. Nearly a year later, he would be reassigned to work with the Native Americans along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. He preached to the Native Americans at the forks of the Delaware, 
for one year. And then on June 19th, 1745, he made his first preaching tour to the Native Americans at Cross Weeksong, New Jersey. This, does that sound right, my New Jersey folks? I don't know. This was the place where God moved in an amazing power and, and, and the part of the awakening happened and, and, and he would see 130 converts from the Native American tribe come to Christ. And in that you see like God is using David Brainerd for this just incredible mission that he's working through. Uh, they, they end up moving from Crossweek Sun to Cranberry uh, in May of 1746 to have their own land and village. And he, he stays with the Native Americans, but then he becomes sick. Um, and in much of his journals and writings, he talks about how cold and miserable and, and how he would, through the night, he would have little sleep because he was just constantly coughing up blood. He had no relief from any of his sicknesses. So he makes one last visit to the, to the Native Americans on March 20th, 1747, and he writes to the house of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, arriving on May 28th, 1747. And it was on October 9th, 1747, that David Brainerd died. Four years as a missionary to the Native Americans. Not a martyr's death, but a, a death of tuberculosis. And I often think it's, it's interesting. This is a conversation that Jennifer and I have had in, in the concept of uh, uh, in the encouragement that we find that oftentimes we look towards missionaries are pastors who have this great influence, there's great success, and we see all the stories of the hundreds or thousands of people that come to Christ, or we, 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 we enjoy stories of success. And David Brainerd had some success, but for the most part, when we look at David Brainerd's life and the, the aspect of what we would consider success in our culture and society, a lot of people would even say that it was for nothing. David's Brainerd, David Brainerd's life, this man who was academically strong, who obviously had an ability to reach people, was only able to do so for four years and then he dies in a waste of a life. That's what culture would say. The success of society would say that. But I can tell you guys, in the, in the story of David Brainerd, there is, there is much encouragement. There is much hope in his surrender and sacrifice. Not because of him, but because of what God did in him even in those short years together. There's a, a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy even then. He was only 29 years old. He hadn't settled down. He hadn't been married. He had no kids. He literally had nothing to his name. The only thing he had as a missionary was a tent to sleep in. Many would say this is a tragedy, a wasted life. But over the past three centuries, thousands upon thousands of missionaries have read his story and have been encouraged by his life, a life that is vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, sick, discouraged, beaten down, lonely, struggling saints who cried to him day and night to accomplish amazing, amazing things for his glory. David Brainerd's life can be summed up in, in several things that I didn't go into entirely, but he constantly struggled with sickness. Throughout his journal entries, he would write of how often he would lay awake at night, trembling with sweat, coughing up blood. It was relentless. He struggled with reoccurring depression. He struggled with this before and after his salvation, and there is something to be said here for those who struggle with depression. It's not a judgment against our faith, but it is the evidence of sin on our natural bodies. He also struggled with loneliness as he was never married and the majority of his ministry to the Native Americans, he was with the people who didn't understand what he was saying 
and they weren't believers in Jesus. He was lonely. And he also faced extraordinarily hardships. He often found himself lost in the woods. There was no GPS back then. He found himself lost in the woods, exposed to cold and hunger. His horse was stolen, poisoned, and broken its leg. He often would only have moldy bread to eat and found little comfort on a straw bed. Oh, I, I don't know if I've ever told you. One of, I think the greatest inventions ever made is air conditioning, a mattress, and ice. Those are just mine. But I often wonder and think of the comforts that we have if we would be willing to give them up. Once again, side trail. But I want to read to you a, a journal entry uh, by Brainerd. And I think this in many ways encapsulates just the absolute core of what we should be looking at in terms of, of Luke chapter 14. And he says this, such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth. And I trust will make heaven the sweeter. Formerly when I was thus exposed to cold, rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now these have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not now, as formerly, appear strange to me. I don't, in such seasons of difficulty, flatter myself that it will be better hereafter, but rather think how much worse it might be, how much greater trials otherwise of God's children have endured, and how much greater are yet perhaps reserved for me. Blessed be God that he makes his the comfort to me. Under my sharpest trials and scarce ever lets these thoughts be attended with terror or melancholy, but they are attended frequently with great joy. One of the beautiful things about Brainerd's testimony and story is that the more that he lost, the more that he gained. The more that he struggled and had different things going on in his life, the more that he sought and looked inward towards Christ as opposed to himself and his circumstances and the things that might relieve him from that. In David Brainerd's life, he looked to the absolute comfort of what Christ provided. And as he did so, all of these things passed away and he cared less and less and less about the world around him and the things that were attaching him and, and working in him and afflicting him. And I think the reason that his life is so powerful and an effect on people is that in spite of all of his struggles, he never gave up his faith in Christ. And in fact, it grew deeper. He was consumed with a passion to finish his race and honor his master and spread the kingdom and advance in personal holiness. And it's this unswerving allegiance to the cause of Christ that his lack of appetite for the things of this world that makes the bleakness of his life glow with glory. There is beauty in a saint who in the middle of all loss can point to Christ and say, I count it all joy that I know him, that I know Christ and him crucified. And I can tell you guys, Jennifer shared some of her struggles this past week for, for the, the, the Bible devotion. And I, and I can tell you that look, we, we all have struggles. And there are times in which we are overwhelmed by them. Mentally, physically, we can be exhausted. May we, in many ways, in likeness to David Brainerd, may we look and, and think less of the things that might comfort those from an earthly, fleshly perspective. And may we look to Christ and his glory as our joy in it all. As we're going back into Luke chapter 14, think of that a little. 
I'm gonna read Luke 14, 25 through 33 again. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he says, it's, he's reminding me that it's like, it's like trying to build a tower or a house and, and you start without thinking through it and you get halfway and you go, you know what? I just don't want to do this anymore. You know what? Man, I didn't think that it would actually cost anything to do this. He also says, it's like going to war and realizing you don't have enough soldiers to win. And you go into the battle and, and you try to defeat the enemy without counting the cost of what it might take. You see, there's a reality in which when Jesus calls us, he's asking us to count the cost of our lives. He's asking us, be sure to count the cost before you sign up for discipleship with me because it may be more than you are willing to lose. I don't want you to sign up and be surprised later when the cost is too great. When I look at this passage, one of the things that I thought in the concept of when we don't understand, it doesn't make sense is that when I look at this passage, it appears that God is requesting too much of us. He's asking too much of us. Relationally, physically. And I can tell you guys, if I was not in Christ, and I was thinking about myself, these things are too much. To lose my family, to lose myself, is too much of an ask. And that's why Jesus brings this to the forefront of us and he says, have you looked at this? Have you considered it? Because in order to follow me, I'm asking this of you. My request is this, are you willing? He doesn't want us to come to this later point where we go, you know what, Jesus, you just aren't worth it. You're asking too much of me. We often see in scripture when crowds began to form around Jesus, he would say something insane. Something that if we were trying to, to, to start a church plant and we wanted people to come, like, don't say those things, right? Like, Jesus, don't tell them to drink your blood and eat your flesh. Don't tell them that they need to sell everything, maybe just a couple things. Don't tell them that they need to leave their family behind. Tell, they can keep going back and forth and, and don't worry about it. Bury your dead, whatever the case. Like, just don't tell them to leave. Like, make it easy for them to come, but the reality of salvation, the reality of justification is that there is a cost, not only for Jesus, but for us as well. And he doesn't invite them simply into friendship or even tell them how much he loves them on every occasion. But instead, that love actually cuts to the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Is Jesus worth it? Are his comforts enough if you are to lose it all? Is his presence enough when no one else is left standing with you? And I think for a long time, the American church has had an opportunity of prosperity, an opportunity of blessing, of comfort, in which no one asked us hard questions, in which we were left to be on our own devices. We could do whatever we want, and we know that that is now leaving. And the question is, is Jesus still enough? Or was it always about the comfort and about the camaraderie? Or was it... Is it enough that when we lose it all, is he enough in that? When believers in Jesus 
who leave because things get too difficult, is it still enough? Is he asking too much of us? From a fleshly perspective, I would say that this request is too much. Because I can tell you, without the Spirit of God working in my heart and my mind, working and molding me and changing me, that it would be too much. Have you thought about what the cost might be? Because he gives us these two extremes. He gives us what seems to be the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. In verse 26 and 27, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I need to make a point here. The word hate does not actually mean like, Joseph, I hate you, right? right? It's not that intent of like malice towards someone. The word that's actually used here is in comparison to Joseph, I love my wife more. Okay, I still like you, Joseph, but my wife, like if there's gonna be, a, like, sorry, Joseph, like you know what I mean? And I would expect the likewise for Abby. Like Joseph's like, I like Ethan, but not compared to my wife, right? The word hate there is actually a comparison. It, it's saying in comparison to me, there, it looks like hatred. It, it looks like a lowering of valuation, okay? And so what he's saying is, is he's saying, in the context of following me, it's going to look like you love me more, right? Are you willing to do that? And right, at face value, that's, okay, yeah, we can do that. But now think about that practically in our lives. Look, I love my wife and my children dearly. And when my kids come up and ask me for something, it's hard to say no, Right? There's aspects in which things happen like that where we, we are met with that decision of whether we love Jesus more than we love them. For our friends and around us, do we love Jesus more than we love them to the point that we're willing to step out and, 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 and share the gospel with them because we love Jesus more than we love them? Whatever the case may be in that. And sometimes those are going to come to really hard points. And yet sometimes, and there's relationships like with my wife and I, as we love Jesus more than we love each other, we actually are joined together for the purpose of serving Jesus, and it actually makes our relationship better. One of the things that, that I was struck with, especially as a father, and it's still kind of far off because my children are so small, but if, if you could imagine for your second, do you love Jesus more than you love your kids to the point that maybe one day your kid comes to you and says, Dad, Mom, I want to go on the mission field to this place that there are like four believers in Jesus and the death rate is really high for people who aren't this way. Are you going to let me go? Like, can I go? And you go, ah, what? When I think of the missionary stories of these people who are martyrs all through the ages, I step back and I say, the, the mother and the father, what, were, what, what was that relationship like? What, what anguish was there in losing a child for the sake? But if I could imagine for a second my own kids and, and I have to be at the point in this relationship, if I love Jesus more, if I hate them in accordance of this passage, that I would say, go, that Jesus might be proclaimed and that the glory of God might be lifted high. And that these people might know you because of my son or my daughter's sacrifice. And if you die, praise be to the glory of God for the purpose and the advancement of the mission of Christ. I'd, 
Did I say that aloud? Because I don't really want that all the time. Like that type of relationship. It's not just that. It's all throughout our lives. Do we have that type of relationship with Jesus where we go, I don't care about my house, my car. I don't care about my status, my reputation in comparison to knowing you. It doesn't matter what happens to my kids, my family, my wife, my friends. I care about you to the point that none of that matters in comparison. Now, it still doesn't mean that we don't care about our kids or our family or our wives, but in comparison, we trust in Jesus in such a way that we know that this life is only momentary and that we have glory and and in heaven forever with him. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Because that is difficult. I can say it easily. But my heart and my mind as I process through these things, how do I relate in that? And the second extreme language that's used is this aspect of whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's kind of an easy thing, right? Just carry your cross around. He literally means, are you willing to go to the point of martyrdom? Are you willing to go to the point of death for the sake of Christ? It's not just a metaphor. Counting the cost of discipleship means realizing that authentic discipleship may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. The question is, is Jesus really calling us to do that? Is he really asking me to be able to give up that much? And the answer is yes. Now, does it mean that every single one of us will end up relationally having situations that, that, that looks like hatred? No. Does it mean that, that any of us will actually die for the sake of Christ? Not necessarily. More likely, we will face issues with our reputation. We will face issues with our standing. Uh, We will be called stupid and idiots and all of those types of things. But the question is, are you so willing to count the cost of following Jesus that you would say yes to those things? An absolute point of surrender to him in such a way that you would lose it all. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. But if you are in Christ and you know the joys of his comfort and you know the beauty of his presence in your life, the answer is yes. Because I count all things lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. There's actually a pretty neat... um, well, first, I want to give the, there's two absolutes. Any one and all in verse uh, 33. It says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So in case anyone's wondering, anyone, like encompassing, is not willing to renounce all, that means everything, you can't be my disciple. And so that's not an easy question to ask, is it not? I mean, that's one that, that, that is rooted at the very foundation, the very uh, doorstep of our entrance into the relationship with Christ, right? And as we continue on in that relationship, but there's the reality that any single one of us can be required to renounce everything that we have. But there is a really neat promise that's, that's actually in verse uh, 14. 
It says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's, there's the, even in the aspect of what we're in now, the, the, the promise of his comfort, the promise of, of the blessing of his presence, all of these things are worth anything that we could face anyway. And then he just says, look, at the resurrection, you, you're going to experience heaven forever. Is, is that good? Like, is, is that good? Like, what, what, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, I'll take that. There's, there's such beauty in, in the blessings that God gives us that when we, and, and just the beauty of the presence of his relationship with us, that when we look to the things of this world, when we look to trials and temptations and all of these sufferings, it, it really doesn't hold weight to what God offers us in this relationship. And so that's why at first glance it doesn't make sense, but when you really compile and look at, at everything that's going on, Jesus is greater than all of these things. He's better for us than all of these things. My relationships are better because I trust in him, right? I'm not selfish towards my wife in the same way that I would have been if I didn't know Christ. And she can tell you that because when we first were dating, I was selfish even more than I am now. And, and, and I cared more about myself than I cared about her, but as Christ worked and sanctified me, I saw my stupidity. I saw my selfish pride and arrogance. And I said, I, I can't do that. I have to renounce that because it is far greater in our relationship that I strive and look towards Jesus. There is no cost that you can pay in following him that won't be made up to a thousandfold in every direction. And when I look at the life of David Brainerd, as we kind of go back and look at that, I see that he gets it, right? He understood the severity of the call and he said, I have counted the cost and I found you to be worth it. I have looked at my life and even though from the world's perspective, I could have much success. And he says, it doesn't matter in comparison to knowing him. I will go into the wilderness and I will cough blood up and I will have a, a terrible bed and I will sleep in the middle of a cold winter inside of a tent that I may know Christ and make him known to the nations. I will renounce it all. I will renounce my fame. I will renounce my pride. I will renounce everything. If it means me losing my house, losing my reputation, I will give it all up. If it means that my relationship with my wife is different, I give it up. If it means that I send my kids to the mission field, I give it up. Whatever it is, if it means that I lose my life, I renounce it, that I might know him and be comforted by him. Even in the darkest of times when relationships might be lost and our bodies may be waning, may we find comfort and joy in him because we've already counted the cost and we said he's worth it. And for you today, my prayer and my hope is that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart in such a way that, that you can see across your life and you can say, I've counted the cost and I'm willing to lose it. Even though it doesn't make sense to the world, I've counted the cost and I'm willing to lose it. Even though it might mean something different than my dreams and aspirations when I was young. I've counted the cost and I'm willing to lose it for the sake of knowing him, for the sake of making his name great, to bring him glory and honor that I might enjoy in him and just enjoy his presence in my life.
Look, I need that reminder daily because my flesh cries more and more and more as the struggle fights with with the spirit of God working and molding and changing me. We all have to have that that, that perspective on a day-by-day basis that I am dying to myself that I might know him more. And so for us today, my my question is, if, if the Holy Spirit has never convicted you to this point, that you might in this moment really deal with that in such a way that you would say, Lord, if I, I need to count this cost and, and I want to see, I, I want to know you're worth it and I, and, and I want to believe in you in that. So help me understand that. Spirit of God, convict me in that. There are some that we need to change and challenge our perspective of what's most important in the things that are going on around us. Look, if the political party that you associate is more important, are you really counting the cost of following Jesus here? It doesn't mean we forgive and forsake those things, but our priority is Jesus. Are we willing to lose Jesus for a political party? Are we willing to lose Jesus for notoriety and fame and all these things? We need to count that cost. And for some of us, maybe it's time we say, I need to lose it all. And maybe even at the age of 65, you say, I'm going to go to the mission field. I'm willing to give it all up for that. <clears throat> Dave Simpson. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, look, I, 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 I think you guys know what I'm saying, and I think you know what the word is saying. My hope is that the Spirit of God is working in you such a way that you're, you're understanding what Christ is calling you to. The question and the harder thing is, are you actually willing to do so? Are you willing to give it all up? Doesn't mean that it is gonna happen, but it means that you are willing to do so when it does. Let's pray. Father, your words are difficult at times for us in the flesh to understand. We don't always get what you're asking. We don't always understand what your, your will is in this. We, we, we sometimes struggle because it looks so contrary to our perspective and our culture and, and, and even sometimes our, 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 what we think we understand about you. But Lord, we pray and we ask that your spirit would work in such a way in this passage that, that we are brought to the depths of surrender not just simply for the sake of, of, of being servants of you, of, of being people who want to, to, to serve you, but because there is, there is joy in being with you. There's less drama in being with you because our, our, our thoughts and our ideas and our, and our heart is focused and intent upon you in such a way that everything else around us is so menial and small. Father, I pray and ask that your spirit would convict each and every single one of us. Lord, that you might search our hearts, that you might reveal sin and idols and things that are in the way of us following you, Jesus, and that we might lose ourselves for the sake of knowing you. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.